Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the Blister Podcast on the Blister Podcast Network. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, and you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Today, Cody Townsend and I are reviewing some of the outdoor-related news that happened in the month of January, and we answer a number of your Mountain Town advice questions and Mountain Town relationship advice questions, including the age-old question of whether it is worth it to try to teach a significant other a new sport or skill. So that is a very good, very relevant question, and let's see if you agree with what Cody and I have to say about that. And as always, do continue to submit those Mountain Town advice questions. We've gotten some great ones from you all, so keep them coming, and let's keep this thing going. And speaking of keeping this whole thing going... Haven't asked you all in a while, so it's probably about time. We would very much appreciate it if you would leave us a rating or review. If you are enjoying the Blister podcast in general, and for some reason, even when we have Cody come on, if you happen to like that too, I don't know, people are weird, please leave us a rating or review because that does actually let us keep this whole thing going and growing. And two... Every time it hurts my heart when Cody jokes about our 100 listeners, even though I love you, you committed 100, I just would like to see more and more and more and more reviews and ratings to make Cody's salacious claims just less well-founded. So please take just a second wherever you get your podcast, leave us a rating or review, and we... We'll just keep reviewing the news. This episode of the Blister Podcast is presented by the Spokane Alpine House, which is the shop for all ski and ride related gear in the Spokane area. With multiple MasterFit certified boot fitters, a boot fit guarantee, and a head ski tech with over 30 years of experience, there's a reason why people love this shop and keep coming back every season. And these are also some of the reasons why the Spokane Alpine House is a blister-recommended shop. The owners, Drew and Rachel Harding, and their staff are happy to assist all levels of skiers and riders, from complete beginners to seasoned veterans. Furthermore, the Spokane Alpine House has an incredible leasing program. I've talked to Drew and Rachel about that on a past Gear 30 episode, I believe that was Gear 30 episode number 160. It is an extraordinary program, and you should learn more about it. So we'll include a link to actually two Gear 30 conversations that I've had with Drew and Rachel. Check those out, and the next time you are in the Spokane area, head into the Spokane Alpine House, or check them out online at the. Spokane Alpine House, that's H-A-U-S, dot com. Finally, last call here, we've got our Blister Summit coming. It is just around the corner. It starts this coming Sunday, February 12th, with a welcome session in the afternoon, and it runs through February 16th. There is going to be a phenomenal 
collection of panel sessions that we're holding through the summit. And we will include a link in the show notes of this episode where you can find all the information you need about this blister summit. So we are incredibly psyched to see all of you out here in Mount Crested Butte. And my goodness, yeah, we'll see you this coming Sunday. And with that, let's review some news, shall we? Here we go. Well, Cody, nice to see you. What have you been up to? Um, fighting off my third sickness in three months. <laughs> um, that's the main thing that's on my mind. Uh, just kids and daycare, man. Oof. It, it is nobody lies when they tell you how sick you're going to get with kids. So I'm just hoping through the next two years after this, I'm just going to have like a rock solid immune system and I can just like travel anywhere and be totally fine for at least a couple of years. But, uh, but going through this to get to that point, yeah, it's a type two suffer fest. <laughs> Perfect. You're really selling me on this whole, you know, parenting thing with uh, just constant sickness and, you know, constant fear that something's happening to this, you know, little tiny baby human being. Man, sounds real stressful and exhausting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I know we're going to always say, and I heard it the whole time too, it's like, it's the greatest thing you'll ever do. And it is pretty freaking awesome. But the side effects of it, maybe that's just because it's so awesome. The side effects are sometimes pretty poor. <laughs> like you're always tired. And, uh, um, but then, oh, you got especially, it's, uh, it's definitely been chaos in my household lately because we have two kids here and we had two families, my family, and then Jackie Peso, uh, Rene Barkeret and their son, Tor. Um, so Jackie and Elise are filming a project together this year um, to be decided. And I'm not going to spoil it for them. I want to let them announce it. Um, but they're working on a project to, um, together. So I've been running around trying to win as many dad points as I can because I need to cash those dad points in come spring when all of a sudden it's, you know, I'm gone for two months. So so I've been uh, yeah, cooking for five to six people, three meals a day, running around, dropping off the kids at daycare, picking them up at daycare and trying to, trying to support them. Be, be a good dad, be a good husband. And they work on their project and I'm just running around exhausted. <laughs> Perfect. Couldn't happen to a nicer guy. Hey, I don't like that tone. <laughs> you know how I often like to lead by talking about why I'm mad at you yes, yes, this month? Yes. It's real. I'm not really mad at you. We got to talk football for just a second. I don't want to. <laughs> I actually chose your stupid 49ers to win the whole thing. I didn't ask you about that. I was, I did not. I was like, I'm just doing this, my own decision. Do I want to go this way? And then our rookie quarterback basically <laughs> hurt himself and everything exploded into a ball of flames in five seconds. And uh, so I can't really be mad at you because I didn't even, you did not hard sell me on this, but it was kind of sad, I guess, for both of us. I will say every time you did text me on your picks and whatnot, I definitely didn't lead you astray. And I was right more often than wrong when it, when we went to it. So, um, but man, yeah. Yeah. As a 49er fan, that was just one of the most frustrating games ever. And I think even just for like the general populace, that was just such a 
shit NFC championship game. It wasn't even a game. You're like, cool. We have our like arguably fifth string quarterback who literally can't throw a ball. His UCL is completely torn in his elbow and he can't throw a ball. So, uh, yeah, it was, that was a very depressing day in, in football land for me, but eh, it was a good year, but God football, man, football on a more positive note here. I just recorded a conversation today for our crafted podcast during the conversation i was like oh cody's gonna love this it is a wild dork out about coffee gear mm. and like the spectrum of it with andrew gardner who i just i call it coffee psychopaths andrew prefers to call it like coffee enthusiasts mm-hmm. which i think is you know quite the euphemism definitely but um let me just say for any of you who are fairly obsessed about coffee, you need to check out this conversation. So we run the gamut from the very good, very inexpensive options to literally talking about like ten and twelve thousand dollar espresso makers. Yeah, there's there's it's it's kind of a thing. And mostly a study in psychopathology, I think. Yeah. I think you'll enjoy it. Because there's this point, there's got to be a point in there where there's just like kind of this law of diminishing returns. Like the difference between a 50 cent cup of coffee and a $4 cup of coffee is gigantic. Huge. But then all of a sudden, if you're making it with a $10,000 machine and all this stuff, you're like, am I getting only like 5% better coffee out of this? And while I'm spending just boatloads of money on it. Um, Yeah, it's got to be that. I mean, the the, the same thing exists when, when I was working in restaurants and I like, study for my sommelier's license, I remember the only thing I thought about it was like, I want to know this stuff so that I'm not duped by the fact that like everyone thinks a $500 bottle of wine is better than a $50 bottle of wine when that's not the case. Like you can find really good bottles of $50 wine that outclass anything. And the same goes kind of for coffee. You're like, hey, like on these spectrums, like how much better are you getting for the price? So I'm definitely going to listen to that one because I'm curious about it. Yeah. And Andrew has some excellent things to say exactly along these lines and how to think about this very weird world that admittedly I, but I also think many others are kind of obsessed with. Mm -hmm. So um, anyway, I think you'll, you'll enjoy it. So, okay. Far worse news. Yeah. This past week, we got the news that Kyle Smain died in an avalanche in Japan. And this is just another incident that has kind of rocked the snow sports world where by every account, just an incredible person and incredible skier lost his life at the age of 31. I don't know. I was curious to get your thoughts on this. Yeah, there's a few different thoughts from it. I mean, the first, just on focus on Kyle. Um, I knew Kyle decently well, not super well, um, even though he lived in the Tahoe Basin. For Tahoe people, like North Lake Tahoe to South Lake Tahoe feels like a thousand miles apart sometimes. So I'd ridden bikes with him and skied with him, but didn't know him super well. But the times I did go out with him, the one thing I was always impressed with Kyle was that 
I think he was the most talented athlete in the Tahoe Basin. The kid was ridiculous. Like, he was winning half-pipe world championships, like, as, like, a 27-year-old skier. So way older than everyone else. He was also competing. He won the Rolf's Bonsai. So he was, like, that strong of a skier where you could go from half-pipe to winning something like this masochistic downhill down mogul runs um in the Rawls bonsai tour but then you go biking with him too so you look at strava in the south lake tahoe area it's kyle smain at the top of almost every list like uphills downhills like the guy was so ridiculously talented and what i really really liked about him too is like i've seen a lot of professional athletes and especially athletes that are really talented like kyle get kind of bitter and burnout, especially because someone like Kyle never really made it to like an A-tier list of professional athletes. He was the complete polar opposite. The guy was so stoked. And I know these things can get like cliche and we talk about them like in in depth. People can like start to say like much more positive things, but like I'm telling you dead straight, like Kyle was one of the happiest, most stoked individuals I've ever met, just like oozing with positivity. And I think we're seeing that in a lot of the tributes that are coming out there that everyone that met him was like, man, this guy is so nice. Um, So in that regard, it's just, that's where it sucks is like you just, someone that's so good like that taken so soon, um, fresh after he was married, he had a wedding this fall, but he was secretly married this last fall. Um, you know, he'd had a longtime partner and who was, uh, incredibly accomplished, uh, biker herself. Um, it just like, I feel for everyone in the Valley for his family that still reside in South Lake Tahoe. And it just, it's one of those ones you're just like, it sucks. And then that the second part from it is like the the details on what happened that day are a bit scant, but we're seeing some reports from people that are on the ground. So Grant Gunderson, who is shooting photos that whole week with Kyle, um, Adam Yu, the telemark skier from Mount Baker, who was involved in the avalanche, who was actually buried 1.5 meters deep for 25 minutes and emerged completely unscathed. Um, so we're seeing some reports from them. And like the biggest takeaway I can get from it is just like, I think every single one of us would be in where they were transitioning and felt totally fine. We don't think of Japan as that dangerous that often. There's places for sure, especially in Hakuba, which they were sort of near there, but a little on the outskirts. I've seen some pictures of the train. It looked like mellow train, a lot of trees. They were out in like almost like it looked like a meadow. And I can't confirm that, but it's just from my trying to look at the photos. It looks like they're just out in the flats. Grant even said that people were doing beacon practice in that same transition area the day before. So to me, it's one of those ones. It's just that like, what would have any of us done differently in that? And I don't think there is anything. And that's what kind of even makes it feel more tragic because it was just like absolute wrong place, wrong time on no factor other than that's was just the shittiest luck possible and that sucks really sucks i had only actually just been introduced to kyle like within the last week of the accident kyle was coming to the blister summit 
was going to be on a panel session here, um, Christoph Lentz at Fisher just gushed, not even about Kyle as an athlete. Like you already spoke really well to that. But Christoph was just like, Kyle is so inquisitive and sharp. And look, there's a lot of talented pro athletes out there in mountain sports for sure. And admittedly, I kind of tend to gravitate to the people that I think are just thinking hard about stuff and are inherently curious and have you know broad set of interests. And, and I was just so looking forward to getting to spend time with him here and so then to just get this news has been, uh, yeah, quite a shock, not with the reverberations from those who knew Kyle well. Nevertheless, the reverberations from a loss like this within our community are significant. It is tragic. And I wish there was a better takeaway from this. You know, I will leave that, you know, for others who were there to maybe draw those conclusions and takeaways, certainly a loss for the community. Yeah, definitely. No, loss for skiing, loss for the South Lake Tahoe community and everyone that he had kind of touched. And, you know, like the takeaways that, I mean, I don't want to like transition away from this, but it is uh, an article that I had read earlier this month and it kind of like put it to the top of the list this week because it kind of elucidates what kind of, the, the context of this avalanche. So um, I'll first lead with Grant Gunderson put up a post of kind of like on their long journey home and some takeaways and, you know, meeting some of the people that were in the other guide group that had triggered the avalanche that had uh, hit Kyle and Adam when they were in the transition point at the bottom. Um, and one of he says is, we discussed last night how we hope this can serve as a catalyst to improve Japan's avalanche forecasting, how that information is shared with the public and bring it up to the global standard. We also discussed how there needs to be an infoex between all the guides areas here and how severe flaws in Japan's mountain rescue system need to be addressed. So he's trying to say, hey, maybe we can learn something from this. Maybe we can change it. I don't know the specifics of, of what he's addressing, but I will say pointing to this article, there's this really good article in the Thai, the Thai um, which is an independent news magazine out of British Columbia, and it goes into essentially the catalyst for what has built the the Canadian Avalanche forecasting system, the Canadian Avalanche Center. And it talked about these tragedies in uh, Revelstoke and on Rogers Pass in 2003, and just this massive amount of death that was happening in the backcountry and how that really motivated the government, tourism industries, the towns to invest in avalanche forecasting. And um, it's a really good article. And it just reminded me of this because in the way that like it sucks that it takes this, but it often takes tragedy for drastic change. And in this article, there was a lot of tragedy. And that has now created, in my opinion, the best forecasting system in the world. I think Can Canadian Avalanche Center does an incredible job of having this large umbrella, this unified direction, unified forecasting system while also maintaining, you know, for the regional variability that it exists in forecasting and, and, uh, and snowpack. So, I, I would suggest people read it just to know, like, in many ways, I, I, I don't think we are as aware in our modern day that, like, 
avalanche forecasting, this backcountry travel, these advancements have happened very recently. This focus on safety has been in the last 20 years, even though backcountry skiing has been going on for a very long time. And um, yeah, it was um, just seeing Grant's post, reading this article, it was like, yeah, I, 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 maybe there is some change. Maybe there is something that would be beneficial that comes out of this. Um, and that's what we always hope for because, you know, who knows what could have prevented the avalanche. Again, there's scant details in Japan, but, you know, maybe these can be catalysts for creating safer backcountry environments, for getting more information out to backcountry skiers. Where should we go next? All righty. Um, so this, another interesting backcountry article, um, and when it comes to like backcountry rescues and safety and whatnot, um, this comes from out there, Colorado. Um, this uh, headline is exhausted skier rescued after group leaves her behind in Colorado backcountry. And so this goes into this uh, kind of rescue event of a group touring up to a mountain hut, a woman in this group falling behind and therefore then saying like, I don't think I have the physical fitness to make it. Even though this woman is very experienced, has done climbs of the length to get to this hut many times before whatever she was potentially going through, she just didn't feel like she could make it. So the group separated, she decided to turn around um, and then all of a sudden they needed a rescue. Um, so the one thing that I would want to say about this and why I'm bringing this up is like, the, obviously, the internet warriors came out and tried to make this black and white issue. And it's like, you never separate from your parties. You always go through it. Everyone turns around. And it's something I try to practice in my own backcountry safety. But I don't know for you, like for me, practically, how many times have you had a person fall back and turn around, whether it be on a mountain bike, a hike, a run, a backcountry ski, like I, that's happened to you, right? Yeah, hundred percent. Yeah, it could be you're fiddling around or deciding to, you know. I mean, I just had this happen. You know, I was skiing in Austria in a place I'd never been, and this was inbounds, by the way. And we were skiing through some pretty thick trees, and the group had kind of stopped. I was kind of off with one person. That person took off. I was like adjusting some some ski boots, you know, and was just like, oh, I'm just kind of here by myself now. And you start thinking through even in an inbound situation, right? Something goes wrong. You catch a stump, you're upside down in a tree. Well, you know, and before I kind of dropped, it was like, just remember, like something happens, nobody's going to be able to boot pack up or something like this. Right. So I think this isn't just a backcountry thing. I think even in a lot of quote unquote inbound situations, we do this, right? We split, separate, and if something were to go wrong, help isn't coming. Yeah. No. And, you know, it's uh, like, that's the practicality of it. We set this rule in backcountry travel that you like don't separate from your party and you should try in all instances to do that. But shit happens and you get separated and you need to think not in terms of just plan A is everyone sticks together. You need to start to think out plan B, plan C, plan D. Like we got a lot of kind of flack in the first year of the 50s. So we were doing Pyramid Peak. Penn Newhard goes up with us. 
Um, he has at one point back spasms. He'd been traveling a ton, been on airplanes and stuff, and he can't continue. And we had, we were within eyesight of the summit, eyesight of him created a plan. And he was like, you guys go on. And, you know, to me, it was like this kind of thing. We're like, yeah, you shouldn't ever leave someone behind. But what we factored in and what our plan was is like we had radios between each other. He had an inreach and we had eyesight on him and he on us almost the entire time. So what we did was as we started going up, he watched us as we got through the crux. As we got to the top, he's like, OK, I'm going to ski down this chute. We had eyesight on the bottom. We waited for him, saw him ski out. Out and then, like, uh, I believe, I forget if we texted or radio to him. I think we radioed. He's like, I'm by, I'm fine. I'm at the bottom. I'll see you guys there. That was that. So the same sort of thing and this sort of thing is you need to think of plan B's and C's, whether that's a radio communication between the two, whether that's like one person walks back down to the trailhead with them and then comes back if someone feels comfortable enough to do that, um, whether that's just like some sort of, hey, rig this person up to a rope and let's drag this person to the hut. I don't know what it is, but what I just didn't like is the reaction of these A versus B. There's only black and white outcomes from this. So you do often in backcountry travel have to think in the terms of gray and have plans B, C, and D. So um, I just wanted to bring this up because again, reactions very like, just never do that. And practically I'm like, that doesn't, always happen. You can't keep the group together every time. You should try to, but sometimes it just doesn't work and you got to figure out a way to get everyone home safely or get to where you're going safely split up. Hmm. So just to stay on this for a minute, I mean, I guess let me push you a little bit on the idea of like, okay, yeah, so it can be inconvenient at a minimum sometimes if somebody's faster in the group or somebody's having mechanicals on a bike ride or whatever let me just hear you say more about why we shouldn't start to try to build in an ethic of sorry the ethic now is the group never separates yeah i'm saying that's a that's an ethic you should aspire to and you should do everything in your power to keep the group together i'm just saying in reality that doesn't always play out and i think every person that is listening to this podcast you just gave an example from a week ago yeah. i gave an example yeah. from not very long ago i can probably yeah. think of other examples that have happened in recent history where it just doesn't work out that way and like yes you can say like okay the whole group turns around we're going home and in many ways and in many scenarios when it comes to avalanche safety when it comes to risk i practice a veto rule where you know one person in the group if we're going on something steep it's kind of dangerous someone says like i don't feel comfortable with this we all turn around but in this instance you know like oh someone's tired they can ski back to the trailhead or having some mechanicals uh we're still on the up on my bike so i'm just gonna coast it back down because i can't fix it so the groups do separate i'm saying you should aspire to that ethic but you need to figure out plan b c and d and figure out a way to communicate and make sure that everyone's getting off there if we continually think in just you know black and white don't ever do this and don't and do that all the time you're never going to allow for the space to create these plans to figure out how everyone can get off this mountain safely 
So I just want to make sure I'm understanding you correctly. And what I think I'm hearing you say is, yes, keep the groups together. The fact is, sometimes we're just out and it's like, guess what? We're not together right now. So we could have talked a big game about it, but here we are. Have we created the backup scenarios? What happens in the event? And we could almost say the almost inevitable event. Yes that there becomes separation in the group. And that's what you're saying you want us in our groups to focus more on. Yes. I, I just want to make sure that the, that this rule should be a rule, but in reality, it doesn't always play out. Separation happens. Yeah. Yeah. And most of the time, everything ends up fine. In this instance, you know, this woman was so exhausted that she had to call for a rescue. She had an inreach, so she was prepared enough, but she needed people to come rescue her. She didn't have communication with the rest of her group. I think if they had a radio between the two groups, then then we're set. You know, then all of a sudden in that sort of instance, like, hey, you can communicate. Eight people could turn around and come help them as opposed to, you know, eight people of rescuers flying out in a helicopter and helping them. So um, it just goes, we have rules in the backcountry and you should do everything in your power to abide by them. But you also need to have flexible enough thinking to figure out how to get around them, get use them to, you know, figure out an action plan in the instance that things are going sideways and that rule is unable to be followed. Big topic, one we should probably revisit because it would be really interesting to, I mean, I'm while you're talking, I'm thinking about like even skiing in bounds, even on bigger pow days, I'd never ski with a radio. Mm-hmm. I don't. And I don't, see how that's wise, right? I've had many hundreds or thousands of days in bounds where it's never really been an issue. It's not an issue till it is. Or even the whistle, right? Yeah. Do you have thoughts on the whistle? Yeah, they're on all of my backpacks and I've always I don't think I've ever used one ever. What about in bounds? You're you're not typically I mean maybe you are more as a training thing when you're skiing in bounds, are you rocking a pack? No, most of the time not, you know, just uh, you're like, oh, it's the first time to go without a pack. Um, It depends. There's been big enough snow days where, you know, like at minimum on powder days, I'm wearing a beacon and at maximum, I will bring a shovel and probe during some crazy cycles. And that has gone into effect. We, Elise and I have helped rescue people and have been on probe lines inbound. So it can be something that you can be helpful with patrol. It's not something I think you have to do, but if you're experienced enough and you're fine with just carrying a shovel and probe, like why not? Um, Like it was interesting skiing with Rene this week, being a European skier, he brought his pack to Always. the resort and you're yep. like, you yep. know, where, where's it? Because that's what they do every time. So, well, and you know, to bring it back to one of the things we were just talking about at the top of this conversation, not implementing changes or, or preaching and practicing new ethics until after tragedies happen. Yeah. This is, you know, one of the things I actually love about kind of mountain sports, broadly speaking, whether that's climbing or mountain biking or frankly, trail running or skiing, snowboarding, splitboarding, et cetera, we always as a community are needing to think through best practices mm-hmm. and ethics and the rest. And that's like, that's not true of 
the NFL (laughs) or basketball, right? Rules are set, go do your thing, whatever. I love that we actually have to and should be continuing to have these conversations about best practices, you know, safety, how to travel more safely in the mountains. And I kind of love that about these communities of ours. Yeah, I think this is probably if somebody's like, yeah, it's never really happened to me. I think I'm just going to blow that off. I hope these guys start talking about something else soon, different topic. You know, a reexamination of our behavior, whether that's inbounds or in the backcountry. I mean, let's do this before we start to implement new things after really tragic events happen. Totally. That's called learning and being better at life, I think. For sure. And it goes to like, so like, and I'm talking about these rules and we have backcountry rules. I have personal rules for myself. Like I've even talked about it for the 50. I have like these set of priorities and there's the five red flag rules. And I even talk about, I give a presentation about the normalization of deviance, which is this sociological theory that is based upon the like slowly eroding of following your own rules. And um, we do that and we get away with it and you start to like cut corners. You start to, you know, see the signs, but you've gotten away with them so much that you continue to do those signs until it catch up to you. So I will say for myself, there are rules that are unbreakable for me. And there are things that you're just like, no, that has to be dead set. And you need to create those rules for you individually. And those are the kind of things that will keep you safe in the backcountry. What I say with this kind of thing, this seems like a rule, never split up the group, but it was kind of gave me, got me thinking. It was like, fuck, we, we have all done this at some point. We have all split a group up. So more it's kind of like that shouldn't necessarily be a rule it's a thing we should aspire to and try to do as much as possible but we need to open thinking for the fact that like hey it's not always going to happen so what do we do in case it doesn't if this does happen so um you know for in this instance like you know one of the things i see people tend to break the rules when they're tired people tend to split up groups um and not be willing to like ski back down and check in on that person or hang behind because they're tired. So one of the things I've often tried to do when I'm backcountry traveling is like, I will think about like, okay, there's the main way up to this line and it is shorter, but it has a little bit more hazard and I am exhausted right now, but man, there's a safer way. It's two miles out of the way and it's an extra 3000 vert. And I will like purposely set myself up on that safer route that has way more vert just to, and then be like, I'm going to be more tired, but don't make a decision based on tiredness. Cause like, whatever, you'll just get more fit after this day and you can sleep later. So, um, those kind of things you have to factor into, to your own back injury decision-making. So anyways, well, good food for thought. Let's all make an agreement to think through these things, reevaluate our practices and especially to have this conversation with the people that we tend to get out in the mountains with. If you have one or two or three people that you tend to travel with, let's 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 just make it a make a commitment to bring this up and you know, have at it. And also, which you've talked about before, we've talked about on in these reviewing the news conversations, sometimes you might just have different risk tolerances, different communication styles, etc. That's cool. Just then decide maybe it's not the best fit, even if it's a good friend of yours, like not the best fit, you know, but it's not a wise idea to just be like, well, this person's always taking off on me or I'm always waiting for them. And so 
I just go ahead on my way. Like these aren't these aren't wise ways to handle these issues. Totally. Yeah, I've got a friend here that's like, he's as strong as it gets. And we always joke because he's like, hey, let's go touring or let's go biking. And you're like, you mean let's meet in the parking lot and then I'll see you up top like 40 minutes after you've arrived. And like, I end up not skiing with him that often because it's like, well, it's not that fun. <laughs> like, plus, it's not that safe. And you you were so effing strong and so fast yeah. that it's just like, what's the point? <laughs> like, we're not going skiing together. <laughs> yeah, I like that. The parking lot meetup, and then I'll catch you at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly. It's pretty much what it's like. So, yeah, I don't ski with that person. But it's a good friend. I like him. Just don't do stuff with him. <laughs> Next up, you wanted to discuss this article that appeared on Bicycling.com. Does cycling have a drinking problem? What do you want to say about this article? First off, that it was really well written. Um Gloria Lou wrote it, and I've been finding she's been writing a lot of really, really cool articles in the outdoor space, um, really about heavy topics. And I thought this one was really well written in the way that it was presented. It's so balanced. You know, it gives individual anecdotes that of people that having such a negative relationship with alcohol and in bicycling, talking about the marketing of alcohol products into these spheres, but not necessarily saying like, oh, they're predatory or preying. It's just like, you know, that actually is part of the community. And I thought it was an interesting article in that, you know, does cycling have a drinking problem? Like we could replace that cycling with a lot of sports in the outdoor world so does does skiing have a drinking problem hell like we have a thing called apres ski like it is just about drinking after you go skiing um you know one of the things i wanted to bring up and just as kind of like what your take is in on these sports and relationships with alcohol but um the the most fascinating part is research has repeatedly shown that athletes and active people drink more than non-athletes and less active people do. A 2021 study of some 38,000 participants, for example, found that very fit men and women, as measured by aerobic capacity, were 2.1 and 1.6 times, respectively, more likely to be heavy or moderate drinkers instead of light drinkers compared to less fit counterparts. So like, Honestly, it brought that up and I was thinking like, well, yeah, does does cycling have a drinking problem? You could say football fandom has a drinking problem. You could say so many different golf has a drinking problem. But that right there is like, oh, we these sports do have a special relationship with alcohol. And, you know, I it, it gets me thinking of like, is the relationship with it? a bad thing that we need to counteract or is it still just kind of an individual thing that we need to rely on individuals to account for themselves? I don't know. What, what, what do you say? <clears throat> yeah. First of all, I guess I probably tend to skew harder toward the individual responsibility part of things to like as a generalization. And actually while I was hesitating there, I was kind of thinking like, I wonder if Cody and I fall on different parts of the spectrum because I feel like sometimes I'm a bit more on the individual responsibility front. You, I feel like if somebody went back and listened to all of these conversations of ours, you tend to maybe talk a bit more about what institutions could be doing, what government could be doing. And those are age-old debates. And the fact is it's probably like a mix of both is usually the right thing. I would like to think that this is changing a bit on the bike side of things, 
but I keep finding my my thoughts pulled back to ski culture on this one. And, you know, look, so much of modern skiing, if we look at some of even, you know, these kind of classic ski films, Aspen Extreme, whatever, so much of modern skiing was built on like the party scene. You already talked about Opry. And I don't know, I would like to think, and I could be wrong because I one, don't have statistical evidence for this. And Gloria was just citing the, you know, very fit men and women are 2.1 and 1.6 times more likely to be heavy drinkers. I'd kind of like to think that our sports are growing up a bit. I mean, maybe this is a bit self-selecting, but I talk to a lot of professional athletes. I can't name actually any off the top of my head who I know and are like, oh yeah, that person's a total dumpster fire when it comes to partying and drinking. Whereas even 5, 10, 15, 20 years ago, I don't think that would have been the case. You know what I mean? So right now we're just focused on the professional athlete side. Mm -hmm. Fact is, heavy, heavy drinking is not helpful for performance. Definitely. That's just a fact. Totally. So professional athletes trying to take a professional approach to their craft when so many other people are training harder than ever, trying to dial in more lifestyle choices than ever. If you're the person just crushing it every night and getting crushed every night, I'm not sure I like your chances long term, right? Given the number of hardworking, smart athletes there are out there. So this is, I'm admittedly focused a bit on the professional athlete side of things when I say, I think we might be seeing a bit of a growing up. Does that resonate with you or not? It does, but I can also, I was just having a conversation this morning with Jackie and Elise about some local athletes that kind of went down the party and route pretty heavily and are not as prominent in the scene anymore, which kind of points to one, it can still happen, but two, yeah, maybe you're ejected out of the scene a bit quicker because of it. So, um, but then what makes me think about this, and this is obviously, I have a personal relationship with it because I'm thinking about the the cultures and on the professional level is there a responsibility to you know not only if if you like to have a whiskey at the end of the day a beer at the end of your tour but also say you know the harms and and I would not come from it and i come from this as a person that has two alcohol sponsors but i also come to it from a person that really does not have a toxic relationship with alcohol at all. Like I haven't drank in the last month and a half, not for any other reason that I just don't feel like it. And yet at the end of a long tour, a big suffer fest, man, when you get back to the car, to the van, you have a beer like that beer tastes so damn good. Like beer doesn't taste better than that. But with that, does my Am I responsible individually for something I really like to do, but don't have a toxic relationship with it to maybe pull back on that because you're creating a culture of that? You're creating like a standard of it. And that's a question I kind of argue with myself quite often. I tend to believe this falls into a little bit more of the individual kind of responsibility just because there is so much education about the dangers of drinking. 
it doesn't necessarily have to be said that pretty much everyone for the most part knows drinking is bad for you and alcoholism is really, really bad for you and really, really dangerous. So like I, I, I struggle with it because like there's points in my own career. I'm like, Hey, like try and set a standard of good safety decisions in the mountains. But you're like, well, the mountains is you make a mistake and you may kill you. Uh, have a, a whiskey, one uh, sip of whiskey at the end of the day, it's probably not going to kill me. So those are the kind of things that I, I wonder if there's a responsibility in the sports or is that kind of already out there? The sports are growing up, as you saying, and maybe it's more becoming more professional. So they're becoming less tied with them. I don't know, but it is an interesting thought experiment of the fact is that like aerobic sports like to have a beer at the end of the day. And for a lot of people that can get out of hand. You know, I had a conversation with Bill Schofelt, the founder of Athletic Brewing Company. That was a previous episode of the Blister podcast. And I actually just talked to Bill last week and I have been a huge advocate of what athletic is doing because I find it to be really good non-alcoholic beer, which is something I had never said in my life prior to discovering athletic. I want to see more companies putting out great non-alcoholic beer products or whatever seltzer iteration or variation there is on that because there is something that I truly value, and there's a huge pleasure in the opera after the event, getting together with friends to celebrate, even if it's just a normal Tuesday in the mountains or something. Like, let it doesn't have to be safe or just big epics or something. It's wonderful, and that's the chance to to catch up. And you know, I love that. But here's the, here's another thing, and I talked about this in my conversation with Bill. If somebody is lactose intolerant, we're not like, oh my God, like that. There's no like social stigma attached to that in the same way that if somebody has a like particularly adverse reaction to alcohol, like that we call alcoholism, you know, like a body just our bodies react differently to different things. And what I would like to see is a reduction of any sort of stigma for someone whose body doesn't respond well to alcohol. And that might mean if I have one, I can't stop, right? There's no stigma attached to like lactose intolerance. It's like, oh, your body has a condition. Cool. Like don't have milk products. But we do this social stigma with alcoholism in a way that I don't think is helpful at all. I'm not totally sure how to get that changed other than maybe I keep saying it on podcasts. Like some people's bodies don't respond well to lactose. Some people don't respond well to alcohol and whether you're lactose intolerant or alcohol intolerant, don't do that thing. Like steer clear of that thing. And no one ought to give a fucking damn. Like, wait, why aren't you having a beer in the way that no one cares if you're like, why aren't you having a glass of milk? It's a good analogy. You're like, if I was pounding a glass of milk at the end of it, I'm like, God, I love milk. And a bunch of lactose people, lactose intolerant people are like, hey, you can't promote that. That gives me diarrhea. (laughs) You're like, well. It's like, then don't drink that thing. And that's why I kind of come back to is just like, well, there's so much education when it comes to 
the dangers of alcohol and alcoholism because there are real consequential effects not for who for anybody that abuses alcohol it's out there that it's like you know like the relationship with booze for a lot of people can be really just celebratory and very at the end of a ride, maybe have a beer on the weekend and be in a healthy relationship with it. For a small percentage of people, that relationship, that culture can lead to somewhere that's very dark. I've seen it with friends of mine um, that it doesn't, it's not great. And to, I, I don't know if we could ever change a culture about it because majority of people do have a fine relationship with alcohol, have a beer at the end of a bike ride, at the end of a, a good ski day, and are go home all the happier and totally fine and healthy. And, you know, I, I, I do think this ends up coming into just individual responsibility. Hmm. And Cody, wouldn't you say that Again, apologies, this is an article about cycling, but look, as we said, this isn't just a cycling thing. Think about the history of modern ski films. It would have been more common 10 to 15 years ago to have like the big kind of out of hand party scene with people crushing beers or bottles of whiskey we don't really have that anymore no it's definitely not it's much more like low-key like it's i kind of like we do in the 50 it's a cheers at the end of the day it's a cheers it's like a cheers and i'm and i'm never personally going to apologize for the cheers yeah. and the celebratory use like moderate use of this stuff and that's why in my personal practice i would much rather pay more money for really good beer, really good whiskey, and just I'm drinking less of it. I'm not out there crushing cheap shit mm -hmm. because I don't think you can really defend that. And, you know, we were talking about coffee and like the rabbit holes you can go down on that. I love the craft of these things and the productions and learning more about how this stuff is made. And so just I'm not saying this works for everybody, but for me, it's about find the the artisans find the people who are really creating these things at a high level, pay more for that stuff and moderate the use. I don't know. I look at it in the same way. It's very analogous to just like even the 50, just backcountry skiing in general. What we're doing is not safe. Staying home at the is the the preferred means of trying to you know survive. But we do these yeah. things because we enjoy them. We love them. We know yeah. the dangers. We see yeah. what can go on in the backcountry. What can happen with wrong decision making. The same goes for for alcohol and these sports that are tied into it. You know they if you have a sport that has a relationship with booze and a certain percentage of people take it to way too dark of a place, then the same could be said for that sport itself. Um, that's right. So, and that's where it kind of comes into it. But I mean, again, I think articles like this are important because it brings up, yep. makes you think about yep. like, hey, like this sport yep. has a huge relationship with it and leads to what you're kind of pointing to is like the professional evolution of these sports and just being more aware that like, hey, if you do a lot of aerobics, you have, you know, you're a man, you're 2.1 the times more likely to be a heavy drinker than someone that's not. So just know that like, Hey, be aware that like you might fall into this trap of after every single bike ride, one beer is going to turn into six beers if you keep down this path. And so again, 
I think it's good. I, it didn't call for the article didn't call for some great change. It just made you think about it. And that's kind of why we're having this discussion. Yep. Let's talk about my personal favorite topic and story for this episode. This one falls under our Canadian news totally. <laughs> segment. The most the most Canadian news of the month, I guess. <laughs> This is fantastic. Totally. This is great. So Chris Cromwell sent this to me. Um, he has a good podcast called BIPOC Outdoors. He's uh, he's just a really nice guy, um, kind of part in the ski industry and outdoor industry, although a lot of people ended up sending this to me. And it's a great, it's just so Canadian. So the headline is, four BC ski trails temporarily closed after owl attacks skiers. So going, continuing on this theme that, man, Canada sure is wild. We got Pine yep. Martin setting off avalanches yep. and we got yep. owls attacking skiers. So, you know, I don't know if there's any rules that we have to follow when it comes to owl attacks, if there's any strategies and decision makings and cultures we have to create to avoid owl attacks. Um, but yeah, it happens in Canada. So especially in Kamloops, you might have to close ski trails and keep your head open for an, an angry owl attacking you. And apologies to the people who were maimed by owls. I feel bad for you, but I find this hilarious and awesome. And so I'm, I, again, I didn't say I was a good person, but I got thinking about like, what if just every time you left your house, basically owl <laughs> attacks were just a part of everyday life. Jesus. And so you're like, honey, I'm going to venture out to the grocery store. I might not make it back because, you know, giant horned owl attacks, but we're out of food. <laughs> You know, like that's a that's a world. I mean, when the when dinosaurs roamed the earth, I take it this was more of a part of like, you know, everyday life. And I was like, man, our lives are sort of boring. They're pretty easy. Like, well, have you ever been attacked by like a bird? Have you ever been like dive bombed to like birds trying to guard a territory or anything? Because not not really. I, I have much cuter stories of like Kia's. In New Zealand, oh, yeah, yeah. like the world's smartest alpine parrots, one of my favorite animals in the world, just like coming up and they have zero fear of you. And it's kind of awesome. Like they effectively you're skiing with alpine parrots in the backcountry. So I have like nice bird stories. So I've been I, I've been attacked by birds before and like dive bombed and <laughs> swooped upon. Um, and I will say that there is probably no bigger delta between the fear that one has when a bird is attacking you and then how funny it is to the people watching it happen <laughs> yeah. because when you're watching it you're laughing your ass off if someone's getting harassed by a dive bombing bird but when it's happening to you it feels scary as hell so when we were in um uh Mount St. Elias, when you're stuck on that beach, um, as we were running out of food, we started walking around trying to figure out if we're going to, you know, have to live off the land a little bit. Well, we found a seagull nest with a bunch of seagull eggs. We didn't take the eggs, but we just kind of marked it. Well, as we were approaching the seagull nest, uh, Mama Seagull saw us approaching the nest and started attacking us. And it was like absolutely terrifying. Like the thing buzzing by your head at like Makaluni and you're like, feel like you're going to get a beak through your skull. Um, but then when I watched other people get attacked by seagulls on that same very trip. It was effing hilarious. You just, you're like watching this little thing swooping and flying down and everyone's like <laughs> jumping around, hands in the sky, running away. So, um, but yeah. So again, Canadian news, 
just got to watch out for the wildlife up there. And things, you, we, we all think of bears, but man, it's not just bears up there. Yeah, owls. So I love owls. I still want to somehow have like a pet owl that just means it lives like kind of around my house. But um, build I just feel like my life... Build a barn and the barn owls will move in. Well, I might just need to build, like I have a bit of a deck. I have to like concoct a... I want it close. Like I want to be able to like make my coffee in the morning and like wave to my pet but free owl so i need to really think through this if if any of you have like great ideas for how to pull this off please write us in and maybe i'll have some end up with some probably illegal exterior barn deck owl home owl shelter sound like a massive harry potter fan or something (laughs) never never read a word of harry potter actually they were actually pretty good i read them when i was pretty young have you read them all yeah i read them when i was young i was like 18 i think when i read them all they're very entertaining books. Okay. That's, I mean, it's what I hear. The world of world agrees with you for sure. <laughs> totally. Where are we going next? We're going to your favorite segment, old Mountain Town Advice. What we got on the slate today? All right. Yeah. This one, this is a, you know, important and by which I mean not important one to start with, but it's kind of in our wheelhouse. So this is from Pat. Pat writes, Glad to see that you all are tackling the important issues in lift line ethics. I totally agree. You cannot post up your group's gear and walk away. So we tackled this issue a while ago, and I feel like we have good clarity on this one. Now, Pat continues. I think now you need to address the adjacent ethics surrounding friend slash group joining i.e. coming from the back of a line to join a party or pre-lift opening when everyone is standing around. So here's an egregious example. Big Foony line on a powder morning. People have been lining up for an hour already. Guy knows he has friends in the front of the line. Guy proceeds to walk all the way around the line, outside the ropes, hands skis across the crowd who passes it along to their friends. Guy then walks to the back of the line and shimmies his way up the crowd sans gear, maintaining the appearance that he had been up in the line originally and was coming back, carefully avoiding side-eye of all other line members, and he then joins friends in the front. This is not cool, right? So when is it okay or not okay to friend join in lift slash gondola slash tram lines? Seems like if you plan to ride as a group, y'all need to be organized and show up together if you are playing the early lift game because everyone else did. Cody, thoughts? It's an interesting one because I my take on it might be a little less black and white than you'd imagine, especially on my stance of leaving gear in a line. And the, the, the gear thing, if we go back to that ruling, that's like leaving an entire chair's worth of gear in your line. We went back to it like a person is allowed to step out of line to use the bathroom, to bring coffee and cookies and bagels back to, the, to their crew. That is totally acceptable. And in this example, I have seen this happen I probably have even done this in my time and I don't, it doesn't really bother me. Like when this is, when I've seen this happen and he's talking about Palisades, the foodie, there's not many Funitels around. And so 
I've seen this happen. And it's like, there's 250 people in front of me if I'm at the back of the line. And one extra person really isn't going to change the game here. It like brings me back to like a driving analogy. You know, when you're like tailgating somebody or someone's driving, someone's driving really slow and you end up tailgating and you're pissed off, you want to get around. And then like calculate out, like if you get around this one person, you're on a single lane road, how much faster are you going to get to town? On a five mile drive, you're like, they're going 50 and I want to go 55 because that's the speed limit. I'm getting there 15 seconds faster. Is that worth doing an illegal pass and being an asshole? To me, no. And so in this regard, like one person jumps in there. I'm like, is it worth being an asshole and calling this person out? Not really. Honestly, not really. But there's obviously a line and that gray line, I don't know what it is. Because like more people start abusing this, then we're going to have to set a dead set rule. Again, having skied ski areas my whole life, being in Funi line, seeing people in one of the harshest, most aggressive lines in the world being the KT-22 line, like I've seen that happen. And generally, maybe some jeers, um, maybe some side eyes, but really not worth truly getting angry about because one person's getting up there. So I agree it's not cool, but I don't think it's worth being an asshole, trying to hold that person back, saying you can't go up there, anything like that, unless we get to the point of abuse. So I will say to the listeners, don't try to do this. Don't make a practice of this. It is not cool to do, but it happens so little, maybe we don't have to be an ass about it. Yeah, I think that's clear. Uh, and I think I agree. So Pat, quick follow up here. Pat said, also, I think we need a corollary to the original leaving your gear in line decision. You just kind of answered this, but we're just signing off on this for Pat. What if your entire party gets in line with gear, establishes their position, and then an individual member tags out to use the restroom, discard trash, grab coffee, etc. What's the ruling on this gray area and its various permutations? I await your wise and just decisions. Yeah, so that's a 100% clearable. And I, yeah. I maybe we weren't as clear in our original rulings on that, but that is totally fine. Um, it's one person, like, especially if you're going and getting coffee and cookies for the whole crew and maybe even the people behind you. Like, yeah. that is... Then absolutely encouraged. Yeah, totally. Especially, wait, that should be a thing. As we're establishing some unwritten new rule book, which we should probably write some of this down, that should be the thing. Yes, it's completely justified. You're completely justified in doing it. But bringing coffee and or cookies or whatever for the people right behind you or around you, if that's the new norm, that's like a we just made skiing better. Oh, it's a good norm. I mean, that used to happen in the KT 2022 line. And that was like the book NAR or the game of NAR in the book Squallywood. Yeah. Um, that kind of like was set by a rule where it was like, if you were a Red Bull athlete, you had to not only pass out Red Bull to everyone in line around you, but also $2 because you were, you know, your sponsor and you get it for free. And like there was NAR points for cooking eggs and bacon on a camp stove yep. in there. So there was like kind of a precedent set 
many, many years ago that like, hey, like do things for the people around your line and you're, you know, this kind of act of leaving line will be very, very permissible. We will be favorable to it. If you see someone skips line for 15 minutes and comes back and then he's like, hey, do you want a co- uh, cocoa or a coffee? You're like, yes, thank you. Awesome. <laughs> like that's, it's you're only going to be win a lot of brownie points and kudos for doing that sort of thing. So um, yeah, if you can do that, definitely do it. All right. We have now our favorite segment. Mountain Town relationship advice. Uh, keep them coming, people. I don't. I don't know why, but we like these ones in particular. So, this one comes from JD. JD writes, "I am a strong believer that you should never be coached into a new sport by your significant other." I know that's a generalization, and it comes from my personal experience, but it is a tale I've heard over and over. Personally, I was late to the skiing scene when my now husband slash then boyfriend attempted to teach me some skills. I usually thought he was being condescending, but when someone else would offer the same advice, I would view it as helpful. For example, I remember the day he taught me to hold the lunch tray and point it downhill and feeling so mad at him for treating me like I was dumb, which he wasn't doing. Later that day, a friend on the ski hill gave me the exact same advice, and it suddenly clicked for me, and I thanked her for her helpful tip. My poor husband. He was very patient as I learned a handful of difficult sports slash skills from him while we were dating, and somehow, through the frustrations and tears on my part, we still made it and are happily married. So my question is this. Many people don't have the luxury of time, money, or both to learn a sport from someone other than their significant other. What do you think are good guidelines to follow, both from the person teaching and from the person learning? What are reasonable expectations to set? Is it worth the pain and potential destruction of a relationship to coach your significant other? <laughs> I laugh at this because I definitely have been in this boat before and I've got two very good examples that lead me to my reinforcement of the rule that you should never be coached into a new po- sport by your significant other. So, um Elise We've been together for a very long time. We have a very healthy relationship. I would even argue to say that like our relationship has only gotten stronger over time. Um, she is the person I love and want to spend the rest of my life with. But when I have tried to teach her other sports, it goes sideways pretty quickly. Uh, I had a tactic and one thing when she was learning to snowmobile, I pretty much didn't teach her to snowmobile. And I had my friends, other guys that she went out with, other ski crews that taught her how to snowmobile. It saved a lot of pain and headaches because I've also tried to teach her to surf and that has gone just as poorly as what this woman is describing in her email. Why? I have no idea. I literally have no idea. And I don't think like if Elise was teaching me something like probably if she was teaching me figure skating because she grew up as a figure skater and she was coaching me, I would be just as annoyed and think anything she said to me is condescending. It's so weird. I do not understand why this 
exists in our world and our relationships, but it just kind of does. So I like say like, yeah, it's better to just kind of seek out other advice, seek out other people. You know, you're going to end up skiing with that person and you have to be open to advice. But like, honestly, it's really, really hard. Um, I kind of finding, as she even describes in here, that she had more success learning from something, someone else is probably going to be the quickest way to you be both being on the skill, same skill level, not having fights, not breaking apart the relationship and getting to enjoy a sport that you love together. So I would say like, it's kind of a decent rule to follow. I think there are special relationships, special people that don't have an issue with it, but I tend to find that rule is more of the norm than it is not. This may or may not be a personal question slash uh, situation. I may or may not currently be in. Let's just say hypothetically, someone is like, oh, I would love to learn to ski. And they were like, oh, and you should teach me how to do that. And let's just say hypothetically, I was like, that's a terrible idea. And this person who is not coming from mountain sports would be like, wait, that sounds like you don't want to spend time with me or go skiing with me. And I'm like, that's not it. You know, it's the exact opposite. It's no, that's because I like you a lot and I want to hang out with you and not have fights with you. And trust me, if I try to teach you how to ski, there's going to be fights. <laughs> and I just, I, yeah, it's, I, again, I, it's a mystery to me. Obviously some psychologists could probably explain this some relationship therapist could probably explain this in very good terms but i've just i've seen it too often it feels like it is something where it's like it's better just to go out the other route um i mean more than anything it's better to get a lot of advice from a lot of different people because like in our sports there exists people that are good coaches and there are people that are good skiers but not good coaches and so like Seek out the good coaches, you know, like if you're good at a sport doesn't mean you can explain it well. Like I feel, I feel like I would be awful at teaching someone how to ski from a basic level because I learned when I was two and I'd be like, you want to turn left? You just like, you just go left, (laughs) you just go, you know, like I can teach on more of the advanced stuff, but in the beginner stuff. So you're like, well, no, seek out a good coach, whether that's a private instructor, whether that's a friend that learned later in life and said like, you know, I had this key when I realized this, this was the key to the success. So, I mean, I would say it's, it's in the interest of preserving a good relationship that seeking out outside advice for learning a sport is, is necessary and helpful. Now, because we've got to do justice to JD's question. Mm-hmm. She specifically is asking, okay, but many people don't have the luxury of time, money, or both to learn from someone else. Are there some guidelines? And I mean, just I think some of the immediate things would be to say first of all, both parties should have the conversation that we are wading into dangerous, shark infested waters here. Both people need to be clear that for whatever reason, this often goes really badly, really badly. And I think both parties need to at least be clear. And then I guess if there's like, okay, well, we're still 
willing to wade into the shark-infested waters, that at least is acknowledged. Yeah. I think acknowledging it, like having some sort of like conversation about it and being like, look, like what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens on the ski hill is, you know, you're going to be struggling to learn. I might say something that sounds condescending. I'm just trying to be helpful. You might think it be this and that misinterpretation. Just like leave it on the hill. Like we're, we're trying to focus on an entirely different thing. We are not building our relationship right now. We are building you into a better athlete at this sport and we have to get through this but i think like if you don't have that luxury of time money um or outside help like yeah set up ground rules have that hard conversation of being like hey we both have to be open to criticism we both have to be honest with each other that they didn't like that both people have to listen to each other and both people have to understand like this hopefully what happens on the hill stays on the hill and we can go back and celebrate and kind of wipe the slate clean again. Yeah. And so the, her last question, is it worth the pain and potential destruction of a relationship to coach your significant other? Pretty much I'd say no. Yeah. Well, I mean, you kind of popped out the hypothetical. What is your answer to this? Yeah. I, I've never really done this or uh, sorry, not in skiing, maybe in mountain biking. And that went really bad, really bad. It's not great. It It's not great. I think maybe there's a middle ground here of, I mean, one, the, the odds of things going badly really are worth you figuring out, like, really, you can't afford one or two or three ski lessons you're willing to risk the destruction of a relationship rather than you know find the resources to get a lesson or two or three okay if you're not going that route if you know someone who is a proficient skier and a good communicator maybe get that person buy that person dinner or make them dinner or do something you know I don't know, do their chores, have that person go out with you. That person is the talker, the instructor, and you can just sort of be there. You are not the lead talker. Let that person do it and try to shut up basically and literally not say anything. And if you don't have any friends between the two of you, then you maybe have some bigger problems. Let's just keep it real. Totally. No, I 100% agree with you. Just remember, if someone's good at a sport doesn't mean they're good at coaching that sport. And that's I would right. seek out someone that's good at coaching that sport, whether that is a professional or a friend, someone, a late learner. I think late learners tend to do better at explaining because they can be like sympathetic with them. They can understand like, hey, it's pretty hard to learn this, but I learned this trick. So, um, yeah, I would say it's, it's not worth it. Um, try and seek outside help. Okay, I want to squeeze two more of these in. We're going to move fairly quickly over this one for reasons that will be apparent in a minute. Andrew wrote in, Hello, I have a couple questions for Mountain Town Advice. One for Jonathan, one for Cody. For Cody, as a skiing dad, how do you balance family time and time for Elise to feel like a grown-up with adult friends and time to ski sick lines yourself? So the question here is basically about balance. Yeah, I don't. <laughs> Jesus. Um, wow. Yeah, I don't know. I'm trying to figure it out for myself, too. Um, like, the unfortunate side of things is, like, it, this is, like, you know, someone 
in the elite ruling class writing an opinion piece for like the New York Times, you're like, wow, they're so out of touch. I feel like the same way because my only advice is, I don't know, be a pro skier. Because like literally I thought about it yesterday. I was like, wow, if I've, I, you know, I've been dropping my kids off at daycare and imagine just like going to work and then coming back and then just like doing everything I've been doing. It's absolute chaos when the kids are in the house at all times right now. And there is no balance, but my balance is that time. And I get to go ski because it's my job. So I feel like super elitist and I don't have really good advice for this because I am out of touch when, when it comes to the average, average father that wants to go ski sick lines, like he says, and also ski with his family and friends. So I, God, I really don't know. It's, um, you know, balance is a hard thing to attain in life. And I'm frequently struggling, you know, struggling with it myself. Um, so whew, I'm, I, I'm almost going to just have to straight pass on this. And I feel really bad because I just don't really know, you know, it takes a, it takes a compromise between your family. It takes a compromise between your wife, between your work, between what you want to do and how you're going to go into your ski career and, or not ski career, but into the things you want to do in skiing, like he sets out in this email. So it's a, I really, I'm going to have to punt this. And I'm saying, like, if you can find some more compromise, um, find it. But otherwise, like, yeah, be a pro skier, which is not good advice (laughs) at all. That's great. Super helpful. Second part of this question for Jonathan, we'll be visiting Crested Butte as a family soon. Sadly, just after the Blister Summit. Dude, Andrew. You seem sharp, but now you just seem like you're somebody who's blowing it. So that's terrible time, especially given your question. My wife recently told me that her goal for the trip is to ski something steeper than she's ever skied before. Great goal. Love it. Where should she ski? Well, the answer, Andrew, is you should come to the summit where we're going to be doing group skis literally for four days in a row, groups with all different ability levels. We are literally doing the solution to your problem I think you need to just adjust your travel dates. Um, Beyond that, I think I'm not going to, over the air, tell people that I haven't met or had a chance to ski with like where they should go. That also kind of feels like we could be venturing back into sort of shark-infested waters. But um, when you come out, send us a note. Let's meet up. And um, maybe we take some runs and, you know, we get to meet a little bit and and then we can maybe have some uh, recommendations. But I love the goal. And it's one of the great things about skiing is you can always be pushing yourself a little bit and exploring new terrain and um, new degrees of steepness, I guess. And in Crested Butte, we have a lot of degrees of steepness to check out. I'm I'm really glad you did a 180 there because I was about to to declare this piece of advice and this question the worst answered question we've done in the history of mountain town advice which isn't that long but i was like wow this guy's just getting shafted you're telling him change his whole vacation to come to yeah. your event and i'm telling him like i got no advice for you buddy be a pro skier yeah, yeah. and then yeah. i but you offered to go ski with them so i, I yeah. that's a good one you, you did pull the okay. 180 i was happy with that i was feeling very bad <laughs> for <see>. andrew <laughs> that plane was in just a tailed or that plane was just in a dead nose dive, but we 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 broke it out. But anyway, well, yeah, come see us in CB, and um, let's let's go ski some laps. All right, one more, one more here, and then we're gonna do a quick what we're reading and watching 
because I get the sense you and I aren't reading and watching a whole ton of things at the moment. So here, this is a good one. And, uh, you know, there's good reason to be sympathetic with this question. Marcus writes, last Saturday, I popped my knee skiing moguls. My orthodoc is pretty certain it's an ACL tear, but waiting for MRI to confirm and see whether MCL and meniscus is involved as well. Would love to hear your and Cody's advice on dealing with the psychological blow of losing a ski season, the repair and recovery period, and the social element of missing ski days with your family and friends. With all the problems in the world, this is clearly a first world problem, but for most of the hardcore skiers that listen to your podcast, man, Marcus, we were getting along so well, but then he added, you can call us the 100 if you choose. It really is a huge blow. Thanks and keep the great content coming. I like the term, Cody. the 100. So the I've, got, I've got the 50 and this is it's my like 100. <laughs> so yeah, this is the yeah. 100 people I reach on a monthly basis. <laughs> um <laughs> But to his point, um, yeah, injuries and in skiing, it's not a matter of if, it's when. And I thought I was going to get away with it for a long time, but we've I've had ACL tears, I've had broken femurs. And the one piece of advice I tend to give people um, is there's always a silver lining. And yes, it sucks. And missing an entire ski season, I've had to do it before. It sucks. But somewhere down the road, you will be thankful for this. And I know that's super hard to understand. But I go back to when I broke my femur um, when I was 18. I was in a skier cross race. I was 11 months out of skiing. And I'll never forget this moment. So I was 18. I was just got done shopping at the mall with an ex-girlfriend. And I'd been working all summer and I bought like a nice collared shirt and something else that was pretty dorky and whatnot. But it just kind of like I was settling into normal life, like what normal people kind of end up doing. And, you know, you you work all the time and then you go take that money and go spend it on something that momentarily makes you happy, but you really don't need. And as I was waiting for that ex-girlfriend, I was in the car and I will never forget this feeling I had inside of me of being like, this is not you. This is not your life. Do everything in your power to not make this your life. And it really refocused my entire mindset and on my goal of being a skier and only a skier for the rest of my life. And it was the catalyst I needed was this like kind of sinking into normalcy and being like all of a sudden super scared and frightful of it. And I'm not saying that's going to be your realization that comes from this. But I just know there is something that tends to come from all these dark clouds. You know, it's the cliche. There's a silver lining to all dark clouds. And I've seen it with a lot of injuries, both personally and friends. You come out of this stronger for whatever reason. As long as you put in the effort when it comes to PT, to healing and getting back to that sport, I think you most people will look back at it and be like, you know, that wasn't that bad. And, you know, I learned this valuable lesson about myself, the sport I love, something else in my life that helped me make a better decision. So just wait for that silver lining. It'll come when you least expect it. It may come two months down the road. It may come six months down the road. It may come a year and a half, but it will come. So just just think about that, that I see it more often than not 
positive things come out of something as negative as blowing your ACL. The only thing I want to say to what Cody said, I felt like that seemed a little bit passive. Like, just hang in there. Eventually, things will come around. I'm not actually sure that is like 100% of the time true. And I mean, by the way, we just had a conversation about alcoholism or, you know, like when people go into a dark place and this is exactly what can happen. Friends are off doing their big epics in the backcountry or whatever. You're home hurt on the couch. Nothing's really going on. That feeling of being left out can be a real one. The way that I would slightly reframe what Cody said, not that he's that that I'm right and he's wrong, but I think these kind of work together. The mantra that I have really seized on to in the last number of years, and I think this happened just after I very badly broke my neck, is this kind of mantra that came to me, everything is an opportunity. I think your job, if the goal for all of us is trying to be better at life as opposed to worse at life, this sucks. Getting hurt sucks. I just said I hate it. But if that, if and when, when that injury comes, your job is to figure out as quickly as possible what is the new opportunity I have here. So that might mean all this time where you were mountain biking or skiing, well, you're not doing that now. Do you learn another language? Do you take some online courses? Do you start and go read all of Tolstoy's novels? I don't think it matters what it is, but you better seize that opportunity to do things that you would not have otherwise been doing if you were spending all this time out in the mountains. And I, I truly actually believe that is a skill and that is a development that needs to happen or you are definitely not using your time on this planet in the best possible way. So I don't know. Does that, does that make sense, Cody? Or are you like, dude, I just said exactly that. Yeah. Well, that's what I was going to say. I felt like that's kind of what I'm saying in a much more grandiose scheme is that the fact that like you learned something from breaking your ribs that you're like, you know what? Progressing in these sports is not as important to me as just being and doing these sports. Being out. Um, yeah. Learning a new language, trying a new job, getting into art, whatever it is, you're going to find something in this. There's a, you have a lot of time on your hands suddenly away from possibly the thing that you love most being skiing and even some of your friends. So use that and use that time, like you said, and you will find something positive that comes out of this. So it's that that's why I, I guess it's more the, the overall umbrella is that generally positivity comes out of something as negative as what this, uh, this kid's going through. Yeah. And I, I guess our only difference here is I would say the minute it happens, Start very proactively figuring out how you are going to now fill this time. What new skill, what new area of knowledge are you going to learn or dive into? Because if you're not diving into this, you actually are doing life wrong, I think. Sitting around feeling sorry for what you just lost because you did just lose lose something significant that is not the best way and it's, it's not the best use of your time it's not going to make you a more interesting person so those are some thoughts and one last thought 
the the friends thing is real. We a very dear friend of ours last season was out all year. And, you know, the fact is we weren't seeing as much of her as we normally would have. That's on me in part. Like I should have been doing more to reach out. And then another thing I just wonder about, not that I really have experience in this, but like figure out how to make a good meal for people and invite your friends over to your place for a dinner on Friday nights or something, or, you know, be proactive on that front too. Don't expect everybody's busy and has stuff going on, but figure out times to maybe reach out and organize meetups that are off the mountain, you know, off doing the thing where you tend to spend a lot of time with your folks. So that's all we got. Probably, sorry, that wasn't terribly profound or anything, but get, get proactive, get proactive, I think is the, the advice. Totally. Be a good friend. I won. My friend just fractured his tibia plateau. He's out for the season. I went and visited him yesterday. Half hour just to say hi because, yeah, you need that. But anyways, yeah. Is that our podcast or you want to go into anything we're watching? I mean. Yeah. What are you? I'm curious. What are you? You've been. Have you uh, been rewatching Succession? We were. It's been since the Jackie showed up. We haven't been watching anything, but um, we were rewatching Succession. Uh, I was watching it because Elise is watching it for the first time. And all I have to say is it's as good, if not better, the second time around. And it is a fantastic freaking series. And if the, you know, uh, these hundred listeners haven't watched it yet. Like, what the <laughs> hell are you doing? Subscribe to HBO. Get it just for Succession. It's such a good show. So that's it. I think you texted me or I texted you that season four trailer was out. The show drops March 26th, I believe. I have not watched the trailer because, as I told you, I'm kind of savoring, like, knowing that it's out there. I'm I'm so happy for this show to be coming back. And I... I still want to do the rewatch that you're talking about. I haven't gotten to it yet. But anyway, yes, Succession is coming back into our lives. So happy. Reviewing the news is probably just going to be like one outdoor kind of news topic. And then we just talk about the, yeah, the latest Succession episodes. Possibly. So anyway, yeah, you're you're welcome for that. I watched a movie. I was, I was on a plane. And so... Um, Watch this movie that I otherwise never would have watched, which is kind of my preferred thing to do on an airplane, apparently. Have you heard of this movie, Emily the Criminal? No, I have not. It's really good. Strangely, I actually haven't finished the movie. I think I have 20 minutes left, but there, I was like, okay, I need to stop and actually get this thing written. I realized, um, so I still have 20 minutes to go in this film. So um, I don't know. I Please don't write me and spoil it, people who've seen it. But- I thought it was really good. And so that is a kind of half-baked recommendation. Um, Go watch and maybe even finish Emily the Criminal. That's about what I've got. So, Yeah. Yeah, we're both. I'm pretty much slammed with getting, well, taking care of kids, getting prepped and ready, trying to, like, stay healthy and fit before the season of the 50 kicks off. And so, yeah. Um, plus, I just, like, can't look at the TV after that 49ers loss, man. It still hurts. By the way, dude, Tom Brady just announced his retirement yeah, today. Totally. 
And did you you'd seen the reports oh, yeah. that maybe he was going to San Fran? Did you did you start to buy into that at all, or did you like I didn't want that to happen? A little bit, but it was also like I don't know. We've gone down that road so often already. I'm just like yeah. I try not to speculate or get your hopes up on anything when it comes to football. I'm in that depressed fandom stage where you're like don't get your hopes up. You're only going to get your dreams crushed. I mean, as a Bears fan, you don't even have dreams, so whatever. Yeah. No, there's no dreams. No, we don't. No, no hope. No dreams. So yeah, it's uh, we just just hanging out at the bottom of the pool. So well, hey man, I will let you get going. Appreciate it as always. Good luck with all the stuff you're doing and working on. Um, let's see when we we do the next one. We will have, we will have completed a blister summit, and you will be hopefully March first ish trying to fire things up with the 50 uh probably and actually probably in the next week or two so there's some things i got my eyes on so not gonna not gonna say anything more than that but there's some things at least start working my way towards them so well cool man appreciate it talk to you soon appreciate it too see you buddy bye-bye Well, that brings us to the end of this edition of the Blister Podcast. I want to say thanks to Cody for the conversation. And again, if you are enjoying these shows, do leave us a rating or a review. It just takes a minute and it does actually allow us to keep this whole thing going and growing. Also, keep submitting those mountain town questions, especially the relationship ones. We like those. So far, by the way, we've heard from the people who submitted relationship questions, and they at least think that our answers were helpful. Kind of amazing. It is what it is. I don't know if any of you else agree. Gold star for us so far. I'm just going to give us one. Anyway, I also want to say thanks to Taylor Ahern for producing this episode, and thanks to you for listening. All right, everybody, we will catch you on all of our other podcasts this week. You can find a list of all of them in the show notes of this episode. And then to many of you, see you in Crested Butte for the summit this Sunday. Can't wait. All right, everybody. Take care.